and welcome. I'm Will. And I'm Alicia. This is Enter the Rabbit Hole. Each week we dive into and dissect the weird, the momentous, and the downright interesting. And today we're covering a side quest! Yes, we are. Today we're doing a little palate cleanser, a little uh, sorbet for your you ears. You just stole my line, <laughs> you piece of shit! Uh, what you don't know is that this is our second time Ryan recording the intro because, uh, some mook, B, uh, was recording it off the laptop instead of the microphone again. Yeah, like like I've got a vendetta against myself and the podcast. Um, and originally that was my line that I came up with on the spot. I'm so sorry. How dare you. Um, yeah, why, why are we, why are we shoving sorbet into the listeners' ears? I don't even care anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Why are we doing a side quest? We had such a heavy topic before, you know, we were doing CIA, mind control, torture, so we thought this week we should cover assassinations. Yeah, uh, keeping it light, light and breezy, which is why, uh, which is why none of the assassinations today... Uh, were successful. Yeah, yes. it makes it okay. Yeah, it's it's a happy ending all round for everybody in today's show, I'm sure. Uh, Alicia, how the heck have you been for the second time today? For the second time! <laughs> tell us again. This week hasn't been great. Uh-huh. All uh, right. I had uh, my wisdom tooth removed, and in Taiwan, they use anesthesia, but uh, they don't put you under or give you any kind of anti-anxiety medication. So I don't know if you've ever heard the sound of your own teeth cracking in your head as someone twists them out of your mouth. Mm. Do not recommend. Probably like the sound of fresh popcorn being made in a pan. Am I right? I don't think I can ever eat popcorn again. (laughs) It was um, not a great experience. And... uh, both of us have had laser eye surgery, and I can tell you, this was worse. Yeah. Although, the laser eye surgery... So, you had your laser eye surgery in the States, I had mine in the UK, and you were adamant before I got mine. Of course, they'll give you something to relax you. I, I got that in the US. They'll, they'll slip I you did, a little something. I wasn't adamant. I thought, you know, I would hope, because you are going to be awake for this procedure. What kind of butchers would do that without giving you a little bit something to to ease the the worry? Yeah, they don't do that in the UK. In the US, they have a a psychiatrist on staff, and um, they basically ask you, do you feel anxious? I can give you one pill. (laughs) And if you say yes, they will give you, uh, actually, they give you two, uh, lorazepam for before the surgery and after the surgery. While they're doing that, do they show you images of old people having carefree fun at the beach and then end it by really quickly saying the side effects in a way that is way too fast for you to actually understand? There's just two people in a tub for some reason. Like, okay. they're each in their own tub. Sure. But, but they're but side they're, by side. But the, Yeah, they're clinking glasses of wine mm-hmm. and then kind of... <laughs> the beach is right in front of you. Why are you in a tub? Yeah. Turns out they didn't give you anything for your anxiety. They actually just gave you medication so that you could have a lasting erection. Yeah. Yeah. For my ED. <laughs> well, I'm glad we got that sorted. Uh, so you you were in a lot of pain, all joking aside. Not because... <laughs> not, <laughs> I mean, it, not because it was, of your ED. It was actually pretty awful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you're doing good now. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm pretty sure they stitched my gum to my cheek accidentally, but it'll be fine. Oh, okay. 
And speaking of having a hard week, uh, yeah, I've I've been pretty hard to live with, huh? Well, I'm already in a lot of pain, and then Will comes by talking about our next episode, going, did you hear about this horrible thing that happened? Let me explain it to you in detail. And I'm on the couch, I can't speak because my <laughs> mouth hurts, so I can't even tell him no. You know, Alicia, <laughs> you know what the thing is? The thing I just can't get my head around, I just think it's crazy, and then I launch into this whole spiel, and she's just looking at me <laughs> wide-eyed, like, please stop talking, please stop. Uh, but that's but what- he doesn't. <laughs> He doesn't. The listeners know what that's like. Am I right? Am I right? I mean, we never stop talking, so yeah. If you're listening, go ahead and follow the show and leave us a review, good, bad, or ugly. We'd love to hear from you. Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes, please share them with us. Or, you know, just get in contact. Send a message. Like a like a post. You can find us on etrhthepod at gmail.com or at etrhthepod on social media. Lovely stuff. Okay, botched assassinations. Here's how this thing is going to work. We have each chosen a couple-ish failed assassinations throughout history that we're going to present to each other. And uh, we are now going to decide who is going to present the first one in the age-old manner of paper, scissor, stone. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Paper, Paper, scissor, scissor, stone. stone. All right. Son of a bitch. I won last time. (laughs) You did, so I guess we're flipping this whole thing on its head. Uh, Alright, well, sit back, relax, and get ready to hear about somebody almost getting murdered. Yay! Anybody who has attended small-town council meetings on a regular basis can attest that there is always one, at least hopefully only one, crank with a big old axe to grind. They are the kind of people who are convinced that the politicians from the opposing party are in league with Satan and after rigging the election to secure victory, are now attending secret orgies where secrets of the shadow government can be shared with high-profile CEOs and members of Masonic societies. Are you not attending those meetings? I go. Oh, I... No, no, I I, I go. I go all the time. Wow. It seems like you're not that invested in politics, if I'm being honest. No, 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 no. I'm there. I've, uh... uh, Jerry. He's there. He's always there. Crazy... Crazy Mad Jerry and uh, Doris with the she's the one handing out the crab cakes mid orgy. Um, all no. right, all right, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. yeah, that sounds right. I'm there with all the big swingers. Fortunately, we no longer have to worry as much about seeing these people in council meetings because they can communicate with your uncle via Facebook. Ba-doom-tsh. Hey, <laughs> it's funny, except it's not. <laughs> But in 1960, in the Massachusetts town of Belmont, this crazy old crank was a 73-year-old retired postal worker named Richard Paul Pavlik. As soon as I say the word postal worker, does that, I mean, that triggers alarm bells in my mind. What about you? I mean, actually, U.S. postal workers are very nice. However, there is, of course, the phrase going postal. Yes, thanks to the range of uh, gun attacks carried out by members of the U.S. Postal Service during the 1990s. You know what, though? I'm not excusing that behavior, but what I will say is that it sounds like they're under an enormous amount of stress. Budget cuts, putting uh, people in office who shouldn't be in office, like at the head of the the Postal Service, all sorts of things. Um, Please do use the USPS if you can. It's better that better and should be cheaper than most of the other options. Yes, uh, 
mailing voting works. It uh, is not <laughs> an inherently easier way to arrange fraud. No, and also, um, if you use the USPS, your mail cannot be opened. But if you use UPS, uh, they can open your mail. Yeah. It's, it's legal. So they can see all of the stuff you've been buying online. All the online, dildos. You dirty, dirty boy. From a 2013 Concord Monitor article by Ray Duckler, quote, Richard Pavlik, Belmont postmaster Tom Murphy remembered, had always been a bit off. Pavlik was the guy who complained about everything, oftentimes reaching ridiculous levels. The guy who made residents roll their eyes at town meetings. Once, he had even said that the newly elected president-elect John F. Kennedy should be assassinated because of his Catholicism and allegiance to the Pope. I don't know how many people out and out said, oh, that Kennedy guy, someone should murder him. But I think a lot of people seem to have problems with the fact that he was a Catholic, and a lot of people thought that that meant that he would be answering directly to the Pope. Yeah, I think there was a lot more Protestant versus Catholic. Yeah. In that time period. Not like nowadays. I mean, it's not like I ever encountered anyone who referred to Barack Obama as the Muslim Antichrist. Well, yeah, but now it's more... Christians versus everybody else. Good, good. It's good. We're united. <laughs> it's good that we enlarge the set. We yeah. enlarge the group size. Pavlik, a veteran of the Great War, had apparently complained loudly about Kennedy and his Catholic agenda. Kennedy had, quote, stolen the 1960 election from Nixon. From a 2015 article in Time magazine, quote, the Kennedy money bought him the White House, Richard Pavlik said. I wanted to teach the United States the presidency is not for sale, and Pavlik knew exactly how he would deliver this lesson to the American people. He was going to kill the soon-to-be president in a spectacular and public way. Excellent. I mean, in fairness, pretty much all presidents buy their way into That's kind of the, the nature of politics, right? <laughs> it's certainly the nature of politics in the US. If, like, if if you're not filthy rich, you cannot become president simply because of paid-for ads, for one, and connections. Yeah, exactly. And the Kennedys are a political institution. Yeah, which is why so many of these political dynasties keep coming back for subsequent elections, is that they have this family money and these family connections that they can then call upon. Um, yeah, a good way to get ahead in politics during the campaign is just to be able to outlast and outspend your opponents, right? Mm -hmm. And if you can successfully run their coffers dry, then you don't really need to worry about beating them in town hall debates. Not really. Most people don't even watch debates. Yikes. Yeah. Not like us. We're always uh, watching, watching the C-SPAN. The C-SPAN, yes. Pavlik donated his home to the nearby Spalding Youth Centre, loaded his car with 10 sticks of dynamite, and was on his way to make history. I do like the detail that he donated his house to the youth centre. So he's not an altogether bad guy. Yeah, it sounds more like a mental health issue than, like, just being a terrible human being. How do you think that conversation went? I think it went a little bit like, you're sunny, uh, I want you to have my house. Oh! Why, Mr... What was his name? <laughs> Pavlik. Mr. Pavlik? 
Well, Scout's Honor, that's just the nicest thing anybody ever did to me. Yeah, you, you boys could use it as a clubhouse. I'm off to kill the president. It sounds great. Have fun. Yeah, he he's in league with the Pope and therefore in league with Satan, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna blow his shit up. I hundred percent support your ideology. <laughs> okay, alright. Well you have a good time selling your cookies. I don't think that's the Boy Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> what, what what do they do? <laughs> they mostly do camping, um, don't allow uh gay people to join. Yeah, and um, and apparently say nothing when there's a threat in the president's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, everybody has their own <laughs> views. I guess uh, I guess Scouts Honor really means something to them. You yeah. know, um, take it to the grave. I I do think they they do now allow um people like LGBTQ people to join. Yeah, before it, I'm sure there were no gay people uh, in the Scouts before that. There's it, a difference between having a gay person in an organization and being allowed to be out in an organization. Well, yeah, anybody <laughs> who's been in the U.S. military will tell you that. Uh, Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so Pavlik followed J.K. So J.K. Pavlik- <laughs> Sorry. He shifted focus. He wanted to take out the soon-to-be author of the Harry Potter series. So Pavlik followed JFK and his entourage cross-country, from St. Louis to San Diego, then on to Hyannisport, Massachusetts, before heading down to Florida. The president-elect would be spending time at his compound in West Palm Beach for some much-needed R&R ahead of his official inauguration the following January. We've been to West Palm Beach, haven't we? We have, yeah. yeah. That's where my mother grew up. Yeah. it's. Uh, how would you describe it? Well, West Palm Beach itself is very wealthy, but just across literally the tracks, um, it's like a really, it's like a Cuban area, and oh my god, the food is incredible. Get yourself some Cuban coffee if you never have. Yeah, (laughs) which is what we did, and uh, if I recall, I think we got a couple of Cubanos there as well, right? Um, Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of ham, but they're still good. Cuban food is amazing. On December 11th, 1960, Pavlik parked his 1950 Buick outside of Kennedy's Palm Beach compound. His plan was simple. When he saw Kennedy exit the building and enter his limo, he would ram them with his car. With the soon-to-be president trapped inside, he would flick the switch on his homemade detonator, setting off the dynamite, which, according to CNN, was, quote, enough to blow up a small mountain. Oh god, I didn't think that ten sticks of dynamite were that powerful. Oh, I mean, I'm not an expert. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I've played Red Dead Redemption, and so I would say Ten Sticks is probably enough to blow up someone's horse. <laughs> but uh, according to CNN, it's enough to blow up a small mountain. Yeah. Well, you're not finding that in Florida. I think we... <laughs> it's very flat. It's enough to blow up some gators. It's definitely enough to kill a president. Sure. If, if that president is stuck inside of his car. And bear in mind, this was... Uh, before the age of the the beast, the mm-hmm. presidential limo with its bulletproof glass and its uh, uh, inbuilt supply of oxygen and yeah, I mean Jesus Christ, the man was going around in a convertible. Well, <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes, but we're not talking about that assassination <laughs> attempt. When Kennedy exited his Palm Beach home, he saw his opportunity, but that morning he would not be traveling alone. Trailing him were his wife, Jackie, and two children, Caroline and John Jr. 
When Pavlik saw his family, he decided to wait. He was only interested in JFK. He didn't want to create any collateral damage. Aw, that's nice of him. I mean, I do... I, I, <laughs> I know we shouldn't be sympathizing with the would-be assassin, but I, I'm like, okay, at least he's got some standards. I mean, it does sound like he has some sort of mental illness. Yes. I'm not saying that, it, like... Oh, because you have a mental illness, you're going to, like, assassinate a president. But it sounds like he might be a little out of touch with reality. Ever so slightly. <laughs> Pavlik made up his mind to carry out his plan the following Sunday when Kennedy went to church. Very fitting for an assassin who apparently hated Catholics. In the interim, he drove around West Palm Beach, perhaps enjoying the area's picturesque miniature duplexes or sampling a Cuban coffee. When he made the mistake of driving across a solid line, a motorcycle cop saw him and ran his plate. He quickly realised that the driver of the 1950 Buick was wanted by the FBI. So why was he wanted by the FBI? Oh, don't you worry, oh. we'll, get, we'll get to that. Oh boy! You see, it wasn't enough for Pavlik to make history anonymously. Like most would-be assassins who set their sights on high-profile individuals for the betterment of mankind he had to leave behind some kind of mark. How else would people understand that what you did was for the greater good? From a 2012 article in Smithsonian Magazine, quote, Pavlik's undoing was the result of deranged postcards he sent to Thomas Murphy, the postmaster of Pavlik's hometown in Belmont, New Hampshire. Murphy was put off by the strange tone of the postcards, and his curiosity led him to do what postmasters do, look at the postmarks. He noticed the pattern, Pavlik happened to be in the same general areas as JFK, dotting the landscape as Kennedy travelled. Murphy called the local police department, who, in turn, called the Secret Service. And from there, Pavlik's plan unravelled. I just realised there, by the way, earlier I said Belmont, Massachusetts. I guess it's Belmont, New Hampshire. I, like an absolute goose, am getting my New England states all mixed up. They're all the same. Whoa. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Big please top. don't, please don't come after me. You get your accent scares me. <laughs> <laughs> Which one in particular? The I no, I don't know. The whole like northeast is full of like hard people and you know like tough people, and uh, in the west coast we're, we're a little softies. <laughs> yes, but would you rather somebody from Boston jump on your head outside a bar, or would you rather somebody from the deep south chase after you with a gun? I mean, if I'm going to choose, I'll probably be like, oh, a New Hampshireite, New Hampshireian, um, because they're generally, like, quite waspy, so I feel like I could fight off, like... <laughs> they they would be trying to murder you with insults. Yeah. And, you know, that's fine. We're used to that. We wear socks with sandals, so... <laughs> <laughs> Which, I can't, I still can't get my head around. <laughs> but you know what? It looks comfy as hell, so maybe I'm just jealous. but you still get the air. Oh, no, I I get it. I get it. In the postcards, Pavlik mentioned how the residents of Belmont would soon hear from him in a big way. That can never mean anything good, unless he's launching his acting career, which is 73 years old. I don't think he is. Um, But if he does, good on him. More power to him. I'm here for it. But uh, getting postcards from anybody short of your cousin who is about to make it big on the London's West End saying, you'll soon to be here for me in a big way, it's never a good sign. I guess. I mean, you know, maybe he was um, 
he was launching his own political career. Yeah. Look he's... out for my ads on radio. Maybe he's going to be the next TikToker. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> he's like, I can do this incredible thing with cups. Oh, God, I'm so, I'm so out of date. <laughs> on November 15th, Pavlik was arrested. He had missed his chance at killing the president-elect. From the Smithsonian article, quote, The would-be assassin was committed to a mental institution, pending charges, on January 27th, 1961, a week after Kennedy was inaugurated as the 35th president of the United States. These charges were eventually dropped, as it became increasingly clear that Pavlik acted out of an inability to distinguish between right and wrong, i.e. he was legally insane. Knew it! <laughs> yeah, which I find surprising because being able to be found legally insane... It's and, quite difficult. Yeah, exactly. But, Especially because he seemed to know that killing the children was wrong. That's a really good point, actually. And also donating his house to mm. the local youth centre... So he clearly has a moral compass, although neither of us are lawyers, nor are we mental health professionals. Uh, please get in touch, ETRH, the pod, uh, on social media or at gmail.com uh, if you happen to be a mental health professional or a lawyer and you just want to chat. But uh, I, I, I'm guessing the the rubric for whether or not somebody can be legally declared insane must be pretty, pretty comprehensive. Sure. I mean, I, I assume it's probably quite different in the 60s than today. <laughs> well, we asked him why he wanted to kill the president, and he jumped up on the desk and started clucking like a chicken and uh, and pecking at my notes. So That was enough for me. <laughs> I got my big red stamp that said insane, and pff, off he goes. Right on his forehead. Yeah, he's a bus driver now. Whoa, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Alienating the bus driver listeners, aren't we? I still love you and appreciate your hard work. I would not want to do that job. Pavlik would remain institutionalised until December 13th, 1966, when, despite protestations from the FBI, he was released. Following his attempted assassination of JFK, Pavlik would maintain that he was innocent of all charges, and was not a threat to the public. However, as of Gerald Ford's election in 1974, he was still deemed a, quote, a person of interest by the Secret Service. He died following a stroke in November 1975, at the age of 88. But what if he had been successful, Alicia? What if he had had killed the president before Lee Harvey Oswald? (laughs) Earl Sweeney was the part-time police officer that Tom Murphy had informed about his postcard theory, and he was the one who had then called in a tip to the FBI. Speaking of the potential ramifications of Pavlik's plan, he said, quote, If he had succeeded, Camelot would not have been part of history like it was. The Bay of Pigs might have turned out differently. LBJ would have been president earlier. More importantly, and this is just my speculation, JFK would not have been there to mediate during the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962. Had cooler heads not prevailed, who knows what potential catastrophic outcome could have befallen the rest of humanity. What I'm saying is, if Pavlik had gotten there first, all of humanity could have been wiped out. You know, it, it's fun to play what if. Sure, it? sure, of course. So that's the story of uh, of Richard Paul Pavlik almost blowing up JFK. Well, I'm glad he didn't. And uh, I don't think he did, but I really do hope he got the help that he needed. Yeah, if by help you mean a straitjacket. And, and a sanatorium. 
threatened with a lobotomy, then yes, he probably got plenty of help. Um, what should we go into, uh, to my personal attempted assassination? Oh, no, this took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you've been going all these nights. Yeah. Oh. I've been busy. Yeah. It's like, she's see, she's got a real hustle in her step. Yeah, and I also wearing a lot of cloaks recently. <laughs> you look great in black, so I just I didn't question it. That's fair. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yes, I'd love to hear about your personal assassination. <laughs> okay. Well, my my story is about pop culture icon Andy Warhol. He of the Campbell's paintings and the colorful Mao Zedong, that in, Andy Warhol. Indeed, Andy Warhol and quote unquote radical feminist named Valerie Solanas. So, before we jump into the assassination, I'd like to give you a little bit of background about Solanas. Valerie Solanas was born in 1936 and was, by all accounts, a smart, funny child who liked to play popular songs on the piano and change their lyrics. Before Weird Al, there was Valerie Solanas. (laughs) (laughs) Before you, there was Valerie Solanas. And we we all remember that time that Weird Al tried to kill President Clinton. Yeah. he, he said it was to promote his new album, but I don't know. The food album. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did try and kill him with pizza. <clears throat> Unfortunately for Solanas, um, things started to kind of go downhill. She was possibly sexually abused by her father. She attacked a nun at her Catholic school and was subsequently kicked out and became twice pregnant by the age of 15. Both her children were taken to be raised by someone else. Hmm. Lot to unpack there. What I'm hearing is that we have another would-be assassin who does not like Catholic people. Um, that's not her main source of ire. Sure, (laughs) Um, sure. Yeah, but I don't think she likes religion much. Okay, fair enough. Okay, after she began exploring her sexual and romantic feelings for women, her grades improved. She made it to college where she wrote or sent letters to the school newspaper that attacked sexism in a, quote, Biting yet hilarious fashion, according oh. to biography.com. Just like you. <laughs> Biting and hilarious. Thanks. Uh-huh. She was also reprimanded several times and sent to counseling for her anger management issues. Okay, again, a lot to unpack there. It sounds like she's growing up in a very repressive background. I wonder how... So you said that she explored her romantic and sexual feelings towards other women. Yeah. I wonder how open she was about that. I can't imagine that the people she, around she her were... She was open as a, She was in... Well, I don't know if in college she was an open lesbian. Certainly later in her life. Um, I mean, it's uni. Uh, I, every, everyone's a little bit gay for a little while in uni. Everybody's experimenting. Yeah. Um, Especially if you're studying any of the sciences. So, like, at this point, she's kind of just on track to be a hippie, right? She's really into writing. She is very anti-sexism, as all people should be. So, in in 1962, Solanus moved to Greenwich Village to be a part of the art movement. It was there that she wrote for money and possibly worked as a sex worker. She finished her first play called, quote, Up Your Ass, full title, Up Your Ass, or From the Cradle to the Boat, or The Big Suck, or Up from the Slime. And out of those titles, which which is your favorite? Um, I think Up Your Ass. Yeah? Yeah. It's, it's, to, it's to the point. It's succinct. Can I just up it? So what year did you say that she was in Greenwich Village? Uh, she moved there in 1962. 
Ah, okay. So um, somebody who was into experimenting in Greenwich Village uh, and worked as a sex uh, worker there, if she had been there in the early 50s during the time of George Hunter White from our last Mm. episode, oh, those two would have hit it off. Well, I don't think she would have liked him at all. (laughs) What? No, he's a stand-up gent. Um, so, uh, her play was about a street-smart lesbian prostitute and her off-color associate. In 1965, she sent it off to a myriad of producers, including Andy Warhol, but nobody wanted to touch it because of its lewd material. So, she is basically, at, at the time, pretty broke. She's kind of going from writing job to writing job, not like, you know, she's like a freelancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, she also works as a sex worker and a couple other odd jobs. Yeah. Um, come back to your screenplay. My screenplay? <laughs> well, hold on. <laughs> That's not ready for release yet. Miss Solanus, mm-hmm. is it? Uh, we just want to tell you here at Disney, we love the direction that you're taking this new production. We do have a couple of notes. Um, so it's about a street-smart lesbian sex worker. That's correct, yes. Yes. Um, could she perhaps have some superpowers? Um, well, she's she's street-smart. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. But could she be, like, maybe a wacky inventor? Um, she she could be a writer. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, uh, she has some wacky cohorts. Could any of them be animated forest creatures? I mean, I I could possibly, uh, get on board with some forest creatures, as long as the forest creatures were female. Of course, of course, yeah, uh, 100%, 100%. Uh, and the whole lesbian thing, we're we're just gonna play that down a little bit. No, 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 that's, uh, that's non-negotiable. That's gonna be more implied, uh, a lot of stuff is gonna happen off-screen. Um, you know. So the the sex work is going to have an off stream? Is that what you're saying? Well, you know, we're a family company, but we're very excited for the line of action figures. I can tell you that much. All right. Well, we're really excited to work with you, Miss Solanus. You take care. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Up your ass, buddy. <laughs> yeah, so Solanus wasn't a fan of the institution, I don't think. Mm-hmm. In 1967, she wrote her magnum opus entitled The Scum Manifesto. Hmm. What do you think scum stands for? Uh, society for the creation of ultra meatballs. Nailed it! Ah. Uh, You did get the S right, it is the society. (laughs) It's all, it's gotta be, if it's an S, it's society. Um, Um... is C for communist? No. Just a shot in the dark. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not a bad guess. Yeah. Um, is the M for manifesto? No, because that would be the scum manifesto manifesto. <laughs> I didn't like, look, <laughs> she has some very wordy titles for things. Okay. In some cases, scum is claimed to stand for society for cutting up men. Catchy. Like, just driving in front of them really fast in traffic. No, I think a giant pair of scissors. Ah, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Much more fun. Um, something, this is something that Solanas kind of disputes later, but she did write it out in a full-size ad for the Village Voice. So... She could have done that in a fugue state. Yeah, she could, surely. How many times have you taken out a full-page advert while you're like, oh, still half asleep, like... 
I, you know, don't even talk to me before I've had my coffee, am I right? And written my ad for the Village Voice. Oh, alright, time to start the day. Whoa, I did not mean to type that. Oh, shit. So let's chat about this manifesto. Solanus is labeled as a radical feminist. Like that AOC, am I right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Healthcare for all. <laughs> radical. <laughs> Call Antifa. She's always skating away. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just, like, dropping some knowledge at Congress and then putting her shades on and being like, later, losers. How dare she be an educated, good-looking woman? I hate it. I hate it so much. It makes my penis go hard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Love you, AOC. Okay, it's just, like, untrue uh, and demeaning to, like, the nature of feminism because feminism is about equality and Solanus wants nothing to do with equality it's like calling it's like calling terrorists radical muslims they're right. not they're not muslims it's just a doctrine that they've twisted or like saying that pizza are looking out for animals yeah, exactly <laughs> we love them so much we want to put them down obviously not all terrorists are muslim <laughs> okay she wants quote this is i've taken some choice quotes from her manifesto she wants, quote, civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation. I'm on board so far. Yep, yep, all good, 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 good. And destroy the male sex. Okay, now that's where you're losing me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought I might. Hi, Miss Solanas, thanks for coming back in. Um, we love your manifesto. Love, love, love it. Um, as a member of the male sex... I do have a couple of notes. Um, yeah, if you would just mind going around to the back, uh-huh. getting in line there, I've got someone who would love to deal with you. Okay, all right, sure, will do. So, she claims that, quote, The male is an incomplete female, a walking abortion, aborted at the gene stage. Ah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like even if I weren't... <laughs> If it didn't happen to be a male, anyway, I'd be quite, I'd be quite upset about that. Yeah, she says the Y chromosome is an incomplete X chromosome, and therefore a man is an incomplete woman. Well, I understand if you write the letter Y a certain way, and then you give it an extra little prongy bit at the bottom, then you've made an X. But, but I, I, I don't think that's all the evidence you need to, <laughs> to be saying things like that. Also, surely a man is like a woman, but with but with extra bits. I mean, we got we got stuff hanging out at you the bottom. You got some extra bits. You have some bits. We so don't have boobies. A fetus is always starts as a female. A female yeah. and then develops into a male. That's why sure. men have nipples. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not just for playing with when you're bored, guys. Um So yeah, all of this it's pretty hard to read. It's a, it's a tough slog. She calls men emotionally crippled and, at best, quote, an inoffensive blob. According to Solanus, men are responsible for war, politeness, which is, like, social blandness for her. Okay. Money, marriage, prostitution, work, the prevention of an automated society, mental illness, the suppression of individuality, the prevention of privacy, morality based on sex, the suburbs... (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of male civil engineers. (laughs) Ladies, we need more women in the STEM subjects. Certainly. And there's a ton more. That's just some of the things. I mean, 
<laughs> I don't a hundred percent disagree with her. Um, I do think if there were more female politicians, there'd probably be some less war. Maybe I'm just naive. Uh, etrh the pod on social media. Um, I don't think that we're. Are we responsible for politeness? Is that a bad thing? Basically, I don't know if I mention it later, but she she says that men are kind of squeamish around, like, they use, like, euphemisms for things, like, instead of just saying sex, you say, like, sexual congress, or, like, yes, this kind of, like, smoothing over of things that are maybe ugly or different. Well, and to her, I think that's kind of that politeness. That does explain... Previously, when I was single and I was dating, I'd be like, you know, do you want to head back to my place? <laughs> Some and sexual congress? Say, fuck? You want to be inside me? You want to fuck? Yeah, I'll fuck. I'm like, oh, this is... I, uh... Well, I'm, I'm too polite to deal with this. <laughs> I'm gonna go make some more and then think about this. Okay, so some people took this manifesto as, like, a satire. Mm-hmm. I... I can't really see it... Uh, it's it's no modest proposal by Jonathan Swift. Sure. So uh, never never read that, but gonna start right past it. Okay, in a modest proposal, Jonathan Swift. There's basically the the Irish famine happening, and he says, "Well, instead of helping these people, we should just eat their babies." Hmm. And yeah, I I thought it was weird when he included uh, some recipe suggestions for that as well. I really like the he, baby fricassee. I could get on board with that. He does. Uh, he says, yeah, okay, so you read it and you're thinking, like, baby meat? Could I? <laughs> like, no, obviously not. It's, are there other white meats? It's pretty obviously satirical. He says, quote, I am assured by a very knowing American of my acquaintance in London that a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is at a year old a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked, or boiled, and I make no doubt that it will equally serve in a fricassee or ragu. It's obviously over the top for shock value, but the moral is we need to help people who are starving, right? My and my American acquaintance gave me this recipe. I have to say thank you, Mr. Epstein. Uh, <laughs> this baby ragu sounds simply delightful. In comparison, Solanus's manifesto is just pure vitriol. My quotes aren't cherry-picked the things from the whole manifesto is just it's really tough to get through and you read the entire thing made yourself read it and i can only assume that the the giggling and looks of glee were just because of pure disgust yeah i wasn't taking notes at all don't look at my notebook okay i'll leave you with the end paragraph to her manifesto the sick irrational men those who attempt to defend themselves against their disgustingness when they see scum barreling down on them, will cling in terror to Big Mama with her big bouncing boobies. But boobies won't protect them against scum. Big Mama will be clinging to Big Daddy, who will be in the corner shitting his forceful dynamic pants. Men who are rational, however, won't kick or struggle or raise a distressing fuss, but will sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and ride the waves to their demise. Hmm. It sounds kind of like she's proposing death by snoo snoo. But <laughs> <laughs> that's what, you know, if it's for the betterment of society, if it's if it's going to end war and usher in an era of all female utopia, 
I I I will be smothered by boobies. I I mean it's very. Like, I'll be at the front of the queue. The funniest thing she says in her entire manifesto is the phrase "big bounce, big mama" with her the, big bouncing boobies. Well, the image of scum barreling down upon the male members of society. There is something very comic book about there that I do like. I would kind of like to see a DC limited series based around the agents of scum. <laughs> I'm in. (laughs) Okay, so it's clear that Solanus already holds a lot of hate, but what caused her to aim all that hate at pop culture icon Andy Warhol? It's the haircut. It's a toupee. It's the toupee. (laughs) Well, firstly, that play that she wrote two years ago and gave to Warhol, he just lost. And to make up for it, he gives her a part in a sexploitation film at the factory that he knows is tasteless and humorless, and pays her a paltry $25 for her part. Whoa. I mean, okay, so this is in 19... What were we, late 60s? Right, okay. Yeah. Even adjusting for inflation. <laughs> that feels like, yeah, a bit of a slap in the face. Secondly, at this time, she had met publisher Maurice Guerodias, uh, famous for publishing controversial works like Lolita. Oh. So he gave her a $500 advance for a novel, but Solanas pushed him to publish The Scum Manifesto instead. According to Biography.com, quote, she began to conflate Warhol, who never returned the edition of Up Your Ass she sent years earlier, and Guero Diaz as men who were out to steal her ideas. I mean, I get it. And it's something that we've learned in the wake of the Me Too movement is how many powerful people there are within all the artistic industries that are actively stifling Sure, let's the, crea- the creative <laughs> talents of women. You know, some, yeah, some of the actors. It's not that necessarily been... these men's fault. However, the Andy Warhol is not necessarily a great guy. Sure. Let's do a quick rundown on Warhol. Born Andrew Warhola in 1928, he was an artist, filmmaker, and an initiator of the pop art movement in the 60s. You'll know him for his vivid paintings of consumer goods like Campbell's soup cans and his celebrity portraits. His was an indictment on materialism and consumer culture. He's not all amazing, though. He did take other artists' work, usually photographs, and turn them into screen prints without crediting or informing the artist. He was known to treat people beneath him with disdain and mocked those around him. In 1964, he moved into an old hat factory, quote, with a pack of fellow speed freaks and transformed the space with tinfoil and spray paint, so that in the end, every surface was silver, according to The New Yorker. And it was called... Uh, studio something or other? The Factory. Oh, oh, okay, <laughs> alright. I really don't know very much about the, the pop art movement at all. But I would imagine if you have an abandoned hat factory, it's only a matter of time before the artist will move in. I imagine that on the last day of production in the hat factory, they were stood around saying, Well, so long, old girl. We know what's going to happen next. All the beatniks are going to move in. (laughs) Take care now. You can't wait until there's a bunch of bohemians shooting up heroin in the corner. Yep. (laughs) We used to make the finest hats. And now they're going to be having an an orgy that they'll be shooting on 8mm in the corner. You think I could get out on that? or? (laughs) As you're like putting on your your turtleneck and your little sunglasses. (laughs) Oh god! (laughs) Jimmy's a beatnik! 
The the factory was a workspace and an exhibit for all the Greenwich Village stars, and it was there that Valerie Solanus attempted to assassinate Andy Warhol. On June 3rd, 1968, Valerie Solanus waited outside the factory for Warhol. As he arrived with art critic Mario Amaya, she stepped into the elevator with him. When the elevator arrived, she shot them both with 32 Beretta. Quote, Amaya wasn't seriously hurt, but Warhol was rushed to the hospital with a ruptured stomach, liver, spleen, and lungs. His grueling recovery required him to wear a surgical corset for the rest of his life. That is like a proper assassination attempt. Yeah, I mean, she gets him, but um, he he luckily survives. The irony here, I, I think... Uh, Maybe you need to adjust for a much larger data set. I am, I'm probably speaking directly out of my bum hole. But a lot of the would-be assassins, most of the would-be assassins that we're covering today are male. And they do, like, kind of a half-ass job. They've got some ED. Yes, but this lady who does not want men to exist because of our aggressive nature, she fucking nearly <laughs> gets it done. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, um, Solanus then wandered around Times Square, eventually walking up to a policeman and confessing to him, quote, The police are looking for me. I'm a flower child. He had too much control over my life. Okay, sure. She was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. How true that is, though, I don't know. It It is believed that she was suffering from a mental illness, but paranoid schizophrenia seems to be quite the catch-all term in the 60s and 70s. This is an era in mental health and, and a, a part of the world where you could still take your wife if she was like a little bit, you know, nah, 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 nah. And Maybe get, she wasn't making dinner on time. Yeah, get part of her brain taken out. They, they were still performing transorbital lobotomies at this time. So I don't. I guess we just have to take any... Uh, diagnosis like that with a, a big old pinch of salt. Yeah. Um, but it does sound like... Um, it doesn't sound like the actions of a rational person. No. Uh, she she needed help that she definitely never got. It was obvious all the way back when she was a child that she was suffering from anger management issues. She received counselling in university, but again, like how how effective that was, we don't know. And then this whole, like manifesto it just like speaks to to something that's like like a corruption kind of eating at your brain yeah what i appreciate there is that i think most of the stories that we're going to be covering today focus more on the uh assassinees rather than the assassins and it's it's interesting regardless of whether you uh agree with her or not her motivations it's interesting to get more of an insight uh into her her reasoning yeah and it, it was a difficult time to be a woman. It was an even harder time to be a member of the LGBTQ community. Like, obviously, Warhol was gay um, and had... I think part of it might have been that, like, he has everything and she didn't. He created the space for himself. He was, like, always seen, like, with celebrities. It is, like... He, he does become kind of, like, a quote-unquote sellout later on in his life. But... She, I, I assume she must have, like, seen him because in the Greenwich Village, it's just, like, the factory is a staple and he is the center of the pop art movement. Sure. And for him to, like, get her play and then just be like, I lost it, would probably be infuriating. I mean, it certainly doesn't give her the right to shoot him. Yeah, and 
it sounds like she sees herself as not necessarily the next Warhol, but she sees herself as another fixture of the Greenwich Village and another core of this pop art, this burgeoning art movement that she could be at the center of if she weren't a woman and if she weren't a lesbian and if society weren't out to to get yeah. her. She never really made a community right in in Greenwich Village, certainly not to the extent that that Warhol did. Yeah. So she was she spent 3 years in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, a year I think in a mental hospital and then 2 years in prison. According to Far Out magazine, quote, Solanas famously said I consider that a moral act, and I consider it immoral that I missed. I should have done target practice. Holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) After she was released, she was arrested again for stalking Warhol, and she later moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where she supposedly lived on the streets and was found dead in a hotel room of pneumonia 14 months after Warhol's own death. God, what a way to go. Warhol never fully recovered from the attempt on his life. He reportedly lived in fear that Solanus would come after him again, and he had that awful surgical corset. He also never paid his doctor. He had this, like, habit of sweeping all the stuff on his desk into, like, a box and labeling it time capsule and, like, the date. Mm-hmm. So they have, like, a lot of info about his life. <laughs> One of the things that he swept into the box is a note from his doctor, Giuseppe Rossi, that said, quote, Pay up, you blowhard. It doesn't make me like Andy Warhol no. more. That being said, I didn't really know anything about him uh, prior to this, uh, besides his very vivid paintings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he died in 1987 from complications for surgery after having his gallbladder removed. Basically, he was afraid to go into hospitals after that, so he left the surgery too long and then died after his gallbladder was removed. He said... Quote, before I was shot, I always thought that I was more half there than all there. I always suspected that I was watching TV instead of living life. People sometimes say that the way things happen in movies is unreal. But actually, it's the way things happen in life that's unreal. The movies make emotions look so strong and real. Whereas, when things really do happen to you, it's like watching television. You don't feel anything. Right when I was being shot, and ever since... I knew that I was watching television. The channels switch, but it's all television. I don't know whether that's profound or Dr. Giuseppe Rossi is right for calling him a blowhard. Maybe Dr. Giuseppe just pumped him full of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I we, we can only imagine what the world would have been like if uh, Andy Warhol discovered Netflix. Uh, or HBO, if he knew the number of streaming platforms we had nowadays and the freedom to watch just any number of genres uh, and box sets. I mean, <laughs> oh God, if if he had been aware of box sets back in the 1960s, I mean, I can't even imagine how different history would have been. Um, all right, well, before we do any more deep dives into history, why don't we take a little break? A little break. A little break. Welcome back. Hey there. 
All right, so before the break, we were talking about box sets um, and how fantastic it would have been if Andy Warhol had known about them. Uh, now I've got a different kind of box set for you. Uh, I'm going to throw together several assassination attempts uh, of one very high-profile individual. How exciting! Mm. And will this be released on two VHSs? Um, or three? Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, we're going to do it on two VHSs or one very large laser disc. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom, or as we simply refer to her, the Queen, is many things to many people. She's the figurehead of the UK and the Commonwealth. She's a kindly old grandmother who appears on your telly every Christmas. She's a stalwart of British society, as regular and immortal as the tides. She's the head of a household of tax spongers who've made a living out of ribbon cuttings and parades. Ooh, spicy. But with the exception of my mother, who has actual, honest-to-God royal family memorabilia that she plans to bequeath to us one day, the Queen and her family are just a part of the background of everyday British life. Certainly nothing to get worked up about, or murder anyone over. You you have seen some of this royal memorabilia, haven't you? I do. In the room that we were staying in, there was a doll. Yes. Of, um, what's her name? The Duchess of Middlesex? Uh, it, Kate Kate Middleton. Yeah. Yeah. In her wedding gown, yes. as she looked on her wedding day, mm-hmm. because my mum, who I love to pieces, is the kind of person who sees the adverts in the back of the Sunday Post magazine for collectible coins and collectible plates and thinks, oh, you'll make some money off of that someday. I mean, in fairness, my grandfather left us his collectible, like his coin collection. And it, I mean, I think it went for a couple thousand dollars. Fair enough, but <laughs> I'm assuming that he collected those coins either by himself or from various different shops. He didn't just buy them out of a magazine that, that was advertising it as a family heirloom that you, that you can sell at auction someday. Sure. It, it, yeah. Uh, Unfortunately for the Queen, when you're the head of one of the most prominent dynasties in the world, you will inevitably rub some people up the wrong way. And as she's been in power since 1953, she's had plenty of time to make a few enemies. One of the earliest and most unusual attempts to off the Queen occurred on April 29th, 1970. Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip were on a state visit to Australia, and were riding the commissioner's train through the Blue Mountains from Sydney to Orange. Now, we can assume that the train was probably swept for explosives prior to departure. We can also assume that the train staff, the members of police, and the Queen's security detail were also probably highly vetted before being assigned to duty. Also, according to former Detective Superintendent Cliff McCarty, the track itself was scouted and cleared for any obstructions beforehand. But it didn't stay that way. A 2009 article in the Sydney Morning Herald describes what happened. Quote, The train entered a winding cutting near Lithgow, then struck a large log which had been wedged across the rails. The log became stuck under the front wheels, and the train slid for almost 200 metres before coming to a halt at a level crossing, still on the tracks and largely unscathed. Police suspected it was an act of sabotage designed to kill or injure the Queen, 
who had just celebrated her 44th birthday, and her husband. Had the train struck the log at full speed, it would have most likely derailed and flown into the embankment, killing or injuring those on board. So, um, so they've swept the tracks, and so, like, presumably people are, like, waiting in the woods, or somebody is waiting, like, off-site, and then, okay, they, they've gone past, they swept, quickly, go, 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 like, getting this log into position. It does suggest a certain level of insider knowledge that they wouldn't just do this uh, the day before, but perhaps... I mean, the assumption that I would make is that this isn't a lone stretch of railway that's only been used by one train going up and down. Presumably there are multiple trains going up and down every day. So what it does suggest is that they knew the itinerary of the Mm -hmm. Queen's visit well enough to put this log in place at this particular... Creepy. Yes, right? I mean, so this isn't... It's not just a random attack. According to an article in the Australian Daily Telegraph from the same year... The quick reactions of train drivers Albert Rowley and Robert Arthur Walkington meant that they were able to spot the log and pull the brakes in time, apparently with amazing skill. Quote, After spotting a log on the railway tracks laid by a would-be assassin, Albert Patrick Rowley not only saved the Queen, but he slowed his train so carefully that he prevented her rolling out of bed. I... So I'm assuming that this is like a morning train. Does he have like enough time in that case to be like, well, there's a log in the road, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hit the bricks. Don't I'm worry, your roll. majesty. I'm gonna make sure you don't roll out of bed. <laughs> she didn't even spill her tea. She just felt a slight bub and went, hmm, <laughs> quite. Are the corgis all right? I think this predates corgis. I'm not sure how long she's had cor- and I don't think she has corgis on anymore, unfortunately, because she, she didn't want wanna... them to outlive her. Yes, because one of them could take the throne. <laughs> <laughs> They're playing the long game. <laughs> There's a real Game of Thrones intrigue going on. Yes, it was me who slipped the poison in her team. Not you, Scruffles. <laughs> That's yeah. the corgi's evil laugh. He can't even make it sound evil. He's the corgi equivalent of Littlefinger. We don't know much about the incident. According to his brother, Walkington was awarded the Imperial Service Medal by members of Australian Special Forces in 1980, but the government tried to downplay what would later become known as the Lithgow Plot. Apparently, the royal couple had no idea that anything untoward had happened on that visit. Uh, that's pretty messed up. (laughs) What we do know mostly came to light in 2009, when the aforementioned Detective McCarty came forward to appeal for new leads. After almost 40 years, they still didn't know who was responsible. Quote, It was one of the big regrets of my public service, he said when speaking to McCarty Radio. No one has ever come forward, although members of the Australian IRA are among those suspected for having committed the attack. Oh, of course they're pointing the finger at the Irish. Well, (laughs) as we'll see later, there might be a reason... It must be uh, must be horrible being a member of the Australian IRA. Think about how messed up your accent is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the other thing that we'll see later on is there are a lot of near misses with the royal family. and They just don't know. Yeah, they are like... They're like the baby from a Warner Brothers cartoon. Think, <laughs> like, anvils keep almost landing on them, and they're just like... It's lovely here, isn't it? Thank you for showing us the horses. 
or whatever the fuck they are doing on that particular <laughs> visit. This would not be the last attempt on the Queen's life. Let's hop forward in time to 1981, when Queen Elizabeth would be the subject of not one, not two, but three separate attempts on her life. The first one occurred on May 9th of that year in the heartland of royal mania, Scotland. <laughs> That's a joke, it is. <laughs> Most Scottish people, my mother aside, don't give a shit <laughs> about the royals. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not that we actively dislike them or anything like that, but it's um, just kind of a... I th- Well, okay, there are some Scottish people that are particularly belligerent about the royal family. I, But honestly, I don't think... I don't think most of us care. No, I don't think most of you care, but you do make... It's it's less about the royal family and it's more about, like, blah, the English. <laughs> Okay, that sentiment does still run relatively strong. Otherwise, I mean, we wouldn't have had as many votes as we did during the the independence campaign uh, back in 2014. But um, we don't have a Scottish terrorist cell that's actively trying to kill English people just because they're English. For the most part, it's good nature of living. (laughs) For the most part, we don't have terror. (laughs) For the most part, we don't have that. Anyway, for those who don't know, one of the royal family's chief duties is ceremonial ribbon cuttings. New hospital wards, shopping centres, etc. On this particular occasion... It's a tough job, but somebody's gotta do it. Those scissors are massive, alright? It requires a lot of upper body strength to lift those bad boys. Thank God the strong (laughs) royals are here to do it for us. They are mostly uh, weak from all of the inbreeding but just ridiculously strong biceps. Sure, from all the giant scissors and the tough, tough ribbon. Yeah. I um, I shouldn't be too hard on anything in the UK because I do eventually want to get my visa there. Yes, so and live I amongst us. love the UK, just uh-huh. in case any government officials are listening. <laughs> when she said, I love the UK, uh, there was actually a little wing, like a little glint <laughs> in, in the corner of her smile. You don't want to be too hard in the UK, but yeah, it's, it's, um, nobody needs a member of the royal family to come and, and officially open a hospital. Yeah. <laughs> so, wee, just wee, so you wee. can. No, wait. Yeah. <laughs> Back that lady up. I don't care how many heart attacks she's just had. Uh, yeah. So they do a lot of ceremonial openings. On this particular occasion, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip had travelled on board the Royal Yacht Britannia to open the £1.2 billion oil terminal at Sullum Vaux in the Shetland Islands. What both the security detail and the plant managers themselves were unaware of was that one of the plant staff on site was a member of the provisional IRA. Excellent. Yeah. Was he constantly riding around on a little pony? Shetland, Shetland. Oh, okay, (laughs) alright. Yeah, he was, but everybody in Shetland does that. They don't have cars. (laughs) They don't walk anywhere. They refuse, so they just ride the horse into the buildings. Yeah, they don't even refer to, obviously they don't call them Shetland ponies, because that's a redundancy. Yeah, well they just, they they call that their car. Yeah. They're like, oh, I can't drive the car tonight, because I'm too drunk. Um, yeah, no, the joke that I was going to make was that he was a member of the provisional IRA, but as soon as he killed the queen, mm-hmm. he would get his full IRA license. <laughs> he would get that out of learner's office back. 
Listeners at home can't see this, but Alicia is going full on red in the face from her, <laughs> from the dad joke that she just made. Um, for those people who aren't aware, if you have your learner's permit, you have to have a big L in the back of your car. Yeah. Um, we don't have that in the US, so. Uh... Yeah. It's also fantastic when you have hens, knights, and stag do's, because you can just buy them and then put them on the bride or groom-to-be while you're basically trying to get them hammered, drunk, and leave them nude in the street somewhere. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Fun times. Despite having spent most of my life in places with sectarian football rivalry and loyalist marches, I myself am not well-versed enough to take you through the various different factions of the IRA or the history of the Troubles. But let's just say that they're not super keen on the British monarchy. This particular period of time... statement. <laughs> they don't love them. They're not big fans. They don't have any dolls in their house. Mm. Unless they're voodoo. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine what Irish voodoo would say. <laughs> don't. Don't even. Uh, this particular period of time was also rife with tension due to a series of hunger strikes being held by prominent members of the IRA who were incarcerated at May's prison in Belfast. Their leader, Bobby Sands, had starved himself to death only four days earlier. That's commitment. Not gonna lie. Yeah, I'm <laughs> trying not to make a... I'm trying to ma- not make the kind of joke that I would hear at a football match. Um, obviously, yeah, these people are very committed to the cause. As much as we joke about this stuff, and from from I, our side of the Irish Sea, it's all fun and games, right? But for people who grew up in places sure. like Northern Ireland, this is no fucking joke. I mean, I wouldn't say it's all fun and games, ever. Yeah. it is certainly uh, not a part of my reality at all. Yeah. So this isn't like uh, I'm a, a quote-unquote political activist and I'm going on hunger, hunger strike for like a whole 48 hours until my tummy gets really rumbly. The, these people were so committed that they were they're actually starving themselves to death. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie, they are very committed. (laughs) There's some debate as to how large this threat loomed in the mind of the event's organisers and security staff. According to a 2016 article in the Daily Record, quote, On the morning of the 9th, the Queen, Prince Philip, and the King of Norway arrived. The King of Norway was there as well, I guess. In such a quiet corner of the UK, where violent crime was almost unheard of, Royal Protection Officers must have believed the most serious threat they would have faced would be from crowds. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, they just nibble on stuff, you know what I mean? (laughs) Sorry, I I know it's a tangent, but do you know that horses sometimes suck on uh, posts, like fence posts? Because of their phallic fixation. Mm, Because they're bored, I guess, and I think it causes them to swallow wind, and, like, they, um... I can't I can't remember if they just like fall over and they're just like full of air or if they can't get their mouths off of the fence post. Why is this not your fun fact for the end of the show? Because <laughs> I just love it. Okay. I have looked it up and uh, it doesn't cause it does cause them to swallow air. They don't fall over, but it can hurt their teeth. Anyway, the picture is very funny. Uh-huh. Uh we'll be sticking that up on Instagram, I'm sure. Uh yeah, no, they uh the biggest threat in the day they thought, was simply going to be over-enthusiastic onlookers. However, in the 2010 book Defense of the Realm, the authorised history of MI5, 
intelligence historian Christopher Andrew writes, quote, Due to a lapse in protective security by British Petroleum, PIRA, or the Provisional IRA, came close to achieving one of its most spectacular coups. BP, however, balked at the cost of implementing all the recommendations, which ran into seven figures, and detailed discussions were still continuing at the time of the attack. I mean, you would balk at paying seven figures to protect the royal family. How much? Is that really necessary for ribbon cutting? (laughs) But the... I mean, we paid for the scissors. They're not (laughs) even that sharp. And the ribbon. Yeah. What the fuck am I going to do with a foot-long pair of scissors? No, I will not. (laughs) Good day to you, sir. (laughs) Yeah, so they they didn't really want to implement all these security measures. They didn't think it was going to be a big deal. And as tense as this period of the troubles might have seemed, again, you know, we... There hadn't been any IRA attacks on Scottish soil, let alone uh, attempts on the lives of high-profile individuals in Scotland, Mm. let alone Shetland. Big up to Shetland. No disrespect whatsoever. I've never been. It looks absolutely picturesque. But it's not exactly like the hustle and bustle of the big city. So, exactly. Uh, This seems like an incredible oversight, given that BP had hired many Irish members of staff many of whom were openly Republican. I'm not saying that these employees should have been barred from work due to their political beliefs, but due diligence, guys. (laughs) So what exactly happened? According to an article in the Shetland Times, two bombs were posted to an agent of the PIRA, who had been working at Sullumvoe for two years. These devices, each weighing between six and seven pounds, were made from gelignite blasting material and fitted with long delay timers. Two years prior to this, the Queen's cousin, Lord Mountbatten, was killed on his fishing boat by a similar device which had also been planted by the IRA. So, there is precedent here, although that happened off the coast of Ireland, uh, as opposed to happening within the borders of the UK. One of the bombs was fitted next to a boiler in the plant itself prior, but this location was 500 metres away from the route the royals would take, well out of harm's way. Perhaps this was a redundancy plan in case the first device failed, but either way it didn't matter. The second bomb didn't arrive on time. A postal delay may have saved the life of the Queen. According to the Shetland Times, quote, When the second parcel was delayed in the post, the bomber appears to have panicked, believing that it had been intercepted en route and fled without collecting either his cards or his bonus pay for two years' service at the construction site. Apparently, the second bomb was eventually delivered to the construction site's post office, but as the man in question was not there to pick it up, it was eventually forwarded to his home address in Northern Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Mick forgot his packet of... He's going to feel so silly. I bet this is like a nice pair of socks from his auntie or something. You know what? We'll just send this on to him. (laughs) As it was, the first bomb detonated well away from onlookers, and the opening continued as planned. What was that? (laughs) I (laughs) think this is not the last time this had happened. (laughs) I think the police at the site probably just said, why, that sounds like a car backfiring to me. <laughs> Nothing to worry about. So the opening continued as planned. From notes of a parliamentary debate at the time, quote, 
A boiler, which was not in use at the time, was damaged, and also were girders in the vicinity. No one was injured, and neither the operation of the terminal nor the inauguration ceremony was affected. Well, that's lucky. Yeah. I know. Can you imagine if some of those girders had really been damaged? What would we have done? That's 1.2 bill that BP spent back in 1981. That's a lot of moolah. Good. Yeah. Spend more on less. Yeah. We've got another couple of more than notable mentions here. Uh, Queen Elizabeth would be the subject of further assassination attempts, two of which would occur this same year. Strangely, although these happened thousands of miles apart at separate times, they shared some striking similarities. On June 13th, 1981, during the Trooping the Colour, essentially a parade marking the Queen's birthday and an opportunity to show how deep her squad be rolling. That's my mom's birthday. Shout out, hip birthday, mom. <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> and it's only two days before my birthday. Shout out to me. Uh, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth was shot at. As she made her way from Buckingham Palace down the mall, a 17-year-old by the name of Marcus Sargent took aim and fired. And just to be clear, the mall is the, the name of a street that's adjacent to Buckingham Palace. It's she, not an actual mall. <laughs> she wasn't hanging out in the food court with her gal pals. <laughs> she didn't have, like, her big poofy jacket. And, like, she did not, no. <laughs> her they, neon tights. <laughs> no, they weren't creaming over Jason, the quarterback, and who he was going to ask to prom. So this 17-year-old named Marcus Sargent shot at her. Fortunately for the Queen, Sargent was firing blank rounds. According to a 2019 article in The Express, Sargent had tried to find live rounds for his dad's pistol, and then tried to secure a firearm license to buy his own. When those plans failed, he presumably settled for trying to startle her horse into throwing her, but her horse, named Burmese, barely reacted. Quote, when Sargent was subdued by the Queen's security, he cried out, I wanted to be famous! I wanted to be a somebody! I mean, there's plenty of ways you could do that. In one, you could go into the military and become a sergeant and become... Sergeant, sergeant? Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> You've been sad now as soon as, I, as soon as I said his name. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, you could become a pop artist and live and work in a hat factory, for example, and, and you could be a real somebody. <laughs> and then somebody will try and kill you. Not with blank rounds. In October of that same year, the Queen was on yet another of her state visits down under, but this time she was visiting New Zealand. While her motorcade was driving through the city of Dunedin on New Zealand's South Island, she was again shot at, again by a 17-year-old gunman. What is she inspiring in all these young boys? (laughs) (laughs) Rage? I don't know. The perpetrator this time round was Christopher John Lewis. He was the apparent leader of a local gang of ne'er-do-wells who called themselves the National Imperial Guerrilla Army. That sounds very, like, (laughs) translated into English. From Kiwi? (laughs) (laughs) No. I believe they speak the same language as us. It sounds like, it would be like like a Mao Zedong. It it would sound better in Russian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, I think there were a group of young men who just wanted to sound... Basically like a Kiwi version of the IRA. Journalist Hamish McNeely covered the incident as part of a six-part investigation back in 2018. 
Quote, The group went on a crime spree around Dunedin, which included stealing guns from an arms store. The three teenagers later robbed a post office. Wearing camouflage jackets over their school uniforms, they stole more than 5,000 in cash <laughs> and escaped on their pushbikes. Sorry, I read it ahead of you. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like something from the fucking Beano until until they like, you know, you expect them to whip out a slingshot and they whip mm. out like a gun. Um, <laughs> Come on, boys, we're going to get the money and then we're going to have to go back because I've got maths in five minutes. <laughs> get on the floor, bitch. <laughs> oh, fuck, I haven't done my homework. <laughs> You lost the accent there at the end. I don't think I ever had the accent, but uh, please let me know, New Zealand listeners. It's ETRH the pod (laughs) on all social media. On the day of the motorcade, John Lewis had made a sniper nest of sorts in a toilet cubicle on the fifth floor of a building opposite the route. Making a nest in a toilet cubicle. Yeah. I mean, when I say a sniper's nest, he wasn't like putting down twigs and, you know, <laughs> making the place Scratching comfy. At the ground. Yeah. He'd laid some eggs before he tried to murder the queen. Yeah. So he makes this little enclosure, if you like, uh, opposite the parade route. He had a loaded .22 caliber rifle, one of the weapons his gang had stolen previously. He fired at the queen through the toilet window, but lucky for her, he missed. Police on the scene covered up the murder attempt, explaining away the sounds of gunfire as firecrackers. (laughs) Yes. During one of New Zealand's famous October Chinese New Year events... They, quote, they were worried that they would never get another royal tour, Mr. McNeely said. They had no police officers on buildings, keeping an eye out for the Queen. They should have been on heightened alert, but clearly that didn't happen. It's just like their reasonings when they're like, oh, firecrackers. It's just, it sounds like something like your dad would tell you if he's like trying to like eat a cookie and you're like, oh, could I, oh, no, it's spicy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, as though the royal family are actual children. Yeah. It's very infantilizing. It, yeah, I mean, it sounds like something out of a farce. It's like the episode of a sitcom where they're trying to prepare dinner in the other room, but somehow there's an elephant in the kitchen, mm. and then they're trying to explain it away. They hear like, and they're like, what was that? Oh, I was just blowing my nose. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's absolute fucking nonsense. I don't know. Maybe the queen gets almost killed so often she's like, what was that? Oh, it was firecrackers. Sure it was. <laughs> yes, I get a lot of firecrackers on my state visits. John Lewis was initially placed on charges of treason and admitted to trying to kill the British monarch. However, in other documents, he said he was merely aiming at the road. Sure. <laughs> I just fucking hated the road. The treason charges were downgraded and he was brought to court on the robbery charges instead. John Lewis would apparently spend much of his 20s in and out of prison. However, he did have what you might call a stroke of good luck in 1995 during another of the Queen's visits to New Zealand. Presumably, the authorities didn't want him anywhere near her, so he was given a taxpayer-funded 10-day getaway to Great Barrier Island off the coast of Auckland. Are you fucking kidding me? I am not. And I don't That's know. Some bullshit. I think I read one of these sources in ABC News. Uh, Australian listeners, please let us know if that is a particularly conservative publication. But this is the kind of thing. First off, 
all the royals research i did my absolute best but when you when you're researching stuff in the royals a lot of it is from slightly right-leaning tabloids because they fucking love the royal family um so i don't know if abc news is also slightly right-leaning but anytime that you're complaining of like and you'll never guess what tax funded benefits these fucking scoundrels got you know it, it's a very familiar rhetoric but um I don't know if Great Barrier Island is the sunny holiday destination that I imagine it to be, but... Even if it's not, like, nobody... There's no tax funder paying holidays in my future, I can tell you that much. The police just drop them off on a boat, and they're like, fucking stay here. (laughs) See you in ten days. Just like a tent. (laughs) What am I gonna eat? I don't fucking care, just don't kill the queen again. Uh, yeah, so that is... This not be the last time that somebody tried to assassinate the queen, but... Let's just say that that was her busy 1981. <laughs> busy year for the Queen. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, do you want to tell us about some more people almost getting killed? Yeah. Let's talk Nazis. My favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's favorite. Um, and this one, you might be leaning a little more towards the would-be assassin than the assassinee. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> when it comes to Nazis. However you want to do it, that's fine. I'm completely on board. I would like to clarify, uh, by Nazi, I mean usually Nazi officials, somebody who wholeheartedly believes in, like... Not just German conscripts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. By way of deception, thou shalt make war. That was Massad's motto in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, so Mossad's former motto kind of sends a little shiver up your spine. Yeah, it sounds like when somebody's got a vendetta against a restaurant that refused to honor their, their gift coupon, and so they take to TripAdvisor with a bunch of fake accounts to try and take them down through that's deception. <laughs> that's how they make war. Okay. Yeah, um, fuck you, Nando's. By the way, I think their current motto is something like, without deception, um, nations fail, something like that. <laughs> They're leaning hard in this yeah. deception thing. Yeah. Massage Joke's mother. on you. We don't actually tell any lies. Ha <laughs> The Israeli intelligence agency is known for its efficiency, ruthlessness, and cunning, and less so for its bungling of assassination attempts of former Nazis. Formed in 1949, by 1960 they had already had a reputation and had successfully attempted a daring snatch and grab of Nazi mass murderer Adolf Eichmann. According to History.com, Quote, Eichmann helped implement the genocide of Jews, coordinating the deportation and murder of hundreds of thousands of Jews in German-occupied areas. And after the war, he escaped to Argentina with the help of, quote, Catholic priests and bishops with pro-Nazi sympathies. Yeah, um, I forget the name here. I think they call it something like the Rat Hole or the Rat, the Rat Line. Yeah. Which was, if I remember correctly, it was a series of high-profile Catholic priests who helped Nazis make their way out of Europe and across to Central and South America, which is great. Yeah, like, the Catholic Church needs any more bad press, although I'm happy to give it to them. (laughs) Wow, you, uh... (laughs) (laughs) If if it's deserving, then yes. You're sounding like a real Richard Paul Pavlik right now, I'm telling you. (laughs) Sound like a real Jew right now. Oh my. Well, you can say it. (laughs) 
Eichmann was found, by all people, a blind Jewish refugee in Argentina whose daughter was dating Eichmann's son. Lothar Herman informed an Israeli judge who tipped off the Mossad for their reckoning. He, uh, he, so he's a blind Jewish refugee. Not trying to be ableist, but um, I'm... I mean, he was right. <laughs> okay, I'm hoping that uh, somebody kind of double-checked that account. His daughter verifi- verified. Uh-huh. They kind of used his daughter to, like, infiltrate the family. She- I think she was dating Eichmann's son, and then they were like, oh, hey, they're Nazis. And then she kind of, like, got on board with the Mossad and kind of infiltrated the family to be like, yes, it is Eichmann. A lot of girls will date a bad boy to try and upset their dad. But then I guess other girls will date a bad boy to get their dad murdered. He didn't get... (laughs) (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) An Israeli officer uttered the only Spanish he knew as Eichmann got off his bus. ¿Dónde está la biblioteca? (laughs) What? (laughs) Get him! No, his uh, only Spanish was, Un momentito, señor. And the next moment, Eichmann was bundled into a car, interrogated, drugged, and then shipped to Israel, where he stood trial and was executed. Nice. I mean, no, I'll stand by it. Nice. <laughs> and in 1972, Mossad, quote, hunted for the black September terrorists who massacred 11 Israeli athletes at the 1972 Olympics. 11 of them were eliminated in killings across Europe, according to The Guardian. And it only took them months. So I'm kind of telling you this to set up that, like, they are efficient. They get it done. Yeah. They're also the people who brought the world Krav Maga, Mm -hmm. which if you've ever attended a Krav Maga class, you're like, okay, so when do we, like, sweep the leg? When do I learn the crate? And they're like, so you grab them by the eyes and then you get them on the ground. And after you stamp on the groin and pummel his chest, then you just slam his head into the ground, and then you run away, because if he doesn't get up, um, the police will be there asking a lot of awkward questions. Yeah, if you don't know about Krav Maga, then, I mean, you should, but basically the idea is violence is not going to go easy, so why should you go easy? I think as a as a people, you only get fucked over so many times <laughs> before you're like, you know what, Queensferry rules can get fucked. I mean... Sure, it only took us several thousand years, but we got there. <laughs> but eventually you got your black belt and who gives a shit. It's clear that despite the tender age of their agency, Mossad was already a force to be feared. In 1977, the new prime minister adopted a policy called Decision B-4 or B-4. This ordered Mossad to renew their hunt for Nazi war criminals, quote, in order to bring them for trial in Israel and if bringing them for trial will not be possible, to kill them. So Decision B4 was not the name of a 90s boy band? No, it's also not like a at, like morning after pill. Oh, or presumably <laughs> sure. the morning before pill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a birth control pill. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's according to Washington Post. This policy was basically in effect all the way up until 1991. So their first target, I guess, after Eichmann was Alois, Alois? Okay. Alois Brunner, I think is his name, was Eichmann's right-hand man and responsible for sending thousands of Jews to camps and to their deaths. Brunner was living in Damascus and working with the Syrian government, supposedly as an advisor and an instructor on torture tactics. Sick. Yeah, so he really got his comeuppance. (laughs) Yeah. 
And we can assume that he initially landed in that role opposite Eichmann after years and years and years of bullying about his name, mm. right? That fosters a lot of hatred on a person, and, well, maybe maybe it'll make you commit genocide, I don't know. So an Israeli spy, codenamed Candle, was sent first to verify his address. In 1961, Candle knocked on the door of the third floor flat by a nervous George Fisher, Brunner's pseudonym. Brunner had a right to be nervous. Only a year earlier, his boss Eichmann had been kidnapped and was currently being held in an Israeli prison. Candle reported back to Mossad that he had found Brunner. He was ordered to prepare a letter bomb and mail it to Brunner's address. At the post office, Candle was given a hard time because he hadn't included a return address on his concealed bomb. Candle mm. quickly wrote down a fake address, and when the bomb exploded in Brunner's house, he only had mild injuries to his eyes. Better than nothing. Sure, I guess. Uh, one of the things that I'm hearing here is the importance of transferable skills, mm. right? Because if, you're, if your only job is logistics, rounding people up and sending them to death camps, when your, let's call it, project uh, finishes, if you're looking for future employers, uh, those kind of people are a dime a dozen. Coming back to STEM subjects, the importance of learning a technical skill. So if you know how to create advanced rocket fuel, for example, then you will just get a job at the US uh, or the USSR as a rocket scientist. And then Mossad won't have to hunt you down and murder you. Yes. Uh, American forces refused to help Mossad in any way, basically, because they were using so many of the Nazis as scientists. Guys, save some for us. <laughs> we're trying to get to the moon to beat the Ruskies here, okay? For every one of those guys you kill, that's another six months from us setting foot on the moon, all right? So in 1980, the Mossad decided to try again, using pretty much the same method. I mean, it had been such a success before, why stop now? They had learned that Brunner subscribed to an Austrian company that sent herbs by mail. So they broke into the company's headquarters, stole envelopes and brochures, and brought them back to Mossad's, quote, toy factory, which is the name of their technology lab. That's brilliant. It's <laughs> it's chilling, but it's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> which created another state-of-the-art letter bomb. The bomb was taken back to the Austrian town and attempted to be mailed to Brunner, but the outgoing mailbox was too small to fit their bomb. Oh, God. <laughs> So they repackaged it, only in the repackaging, they had to take out a significant amount of the explosives, so that when it finally reached Brunner, the bombs reportedly only injured his fingers. (laughs) (laughs) To try to take him out piece by piece. But more importantly, did he he get his Herb of the Month that month? Not that month. Oh, fuck. (laughs) He was busy being in the hospital. (laughs) That's the real tragedy here. Yeah, so... The Mossad called the hospital pretending to be his relatives to, like, figure out the extent of his injuries. Pre- presumably, the hospital would be like, oh, well, he's doing all right. And the Mossad would Oh, be- he is? Oh, fucking shit. I mean, oh, that's good. I was very worried about my uncle, Bruna. That piece of shit. I mean, um, I... The, the I, person who did it is a piece of shit. I, I hope he gets better soon. Give him my... Kisses and my grot wire around his neck. I mean, um, okay, I've got to go now. Bye-bye. After they sent the bomb, by the way, 
Like, they, they dropped it in the mail, and, uh, quote, the Mossad agent's car rolled into a ditch beside the road to Vienna, and they had to be extracted by local firefighters. Oh, Christ. <laughs> That's according to um, Haaretz, which is a, a liberal Israeli newspaper that I use for quite a lot of the source for this. Mm-hmm. So they're doing a really good job of keeping a low profile. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have these agents ever heard of a technological innovation called a gun? <laughs> I, you would think so. They, oh, it's, it's ridiculous. According to Haaretz, quote, the agents had planned to publish an anonymous statement taking responsibility for the assassination if it was successful. It was signed, quote, those who will never forget. But... Elephants. Uh, <laughs> but it was... Scra- but they scrapped the idea, considering as the, the chief of Mossad's Masada unit said, the absence of impressive results. There seems to be some confusion as to whether Brunner died in 2001 in the basement of a Syrian apartment under house arrest, or in 2010, just out and about in his life. Ugh. Here's here's hoping for the former, I guess. Yeah. Unfortunately, if you have done any research on people like Joseph Mengele, you want to believe that when you've got Mossad in your tail, they're going to they're gonna get their man and they're going to get their comeuppance. And some of these motherfuckers just die of old age. Uh, here, here's the spoiler alert. Pretty much all of them do. <sighs> they have, like, a hit list of 11... A Hitler list. Of 11 Nazis, and they get two of them? Um... Yeah. It's rough. So their their second targets are Barbie and Ralph. Okay. In, Germany's version of Barbie and Ken. Yeah. In 1980, Mossad set their sights on Walter Roth, an SS engineer who developed the gas trucks that preceded the gas chambers, and Klaus Barbie, a Gestapo officer known as the Butcher of Lyon. Again, rough name. <laughs> rough names make you do rough things. Plenty of people have rough names, and they don't go on to become the Butcher of Lyon. Yet. Watch out, Lyon. <laughs> According to the Washington Post, the plan was to carry out twin killings within 24 hours, eliminating both Barbie in Bolivia and Ralph in Chile. They rented cars, prepared safe houses, and mapped escape routes. They collected their guns, and they prepared a statement again, signed by those who will never forget, to be sent to newspapers worldwide. Are they sending these statements out beforehand? No, they they basically prepare everything. And in this case, they prepare one for newspapers and one for, they said telephone in the article, but I guess it's like radio or something like that. And um, they basically, like, as soon as they would get, like, the call, be like, you know, he's been eliminated. They'd be like, ha ha, to the newspapers. And like. Can you imagine that phone call where they're like, the man at the Herald says we still have some space at the bottom of the page. So, um, I mean. Anything. My love. Uh, My love to Geraldine. Oh, uh, happy 16th birthday, Caitlin. Um, (laughs) Sorry we killed your father. (laughs) Hugs and kisses. Oh, uh, Volkswagen for sale. 500 or nearest offer. Okay, um, they plan to kill Ralph either as he entered or left his home or were to enter his home and shoot him. There's not much difference in those. It's either, like, waiting outside or barging in, basically. So, two agents waited in a dark corner outside his house for two days. Ralph never left. 
Exasperated, they approached the gate, but Ralph's dog began to bark, and his Chilean housekeeper ran out and yelled, What do you want? You have nothing to look for here. <laughs> the <laughs> agents fled. <laughs> nothing untoward with that. You have nothing to look for here, clearly. It's quite obvious that, like, it's it's ridiculous. These trained agents, they've got, like, their guns. They've been sitting in, like, the corner of the house waiting for him to come out. And then they get spooked by a dog and, like, a little old lady who runs out of the flat. And they're like, apparently, they briefly thought about just, like, entering the home anyway. But then they're like, nah, and just left. I guess you've also got to consider the collateral damage. It's more it's more difficult to have something that looks like just vengeance when oh but we also murdered this dog and this Chilean housekeeper who maybe Ralph was a really good employer for all we know. Well, Ralph died 4 years later of cancer. The uh, the attempt on Barbie was aborted out of fear that the Chilean government would tell Bolivia to increase security. And Barbie was eventually extradited to France, where he was given a life sentence. He died of cancer in prison at the age of 77. Fuck. <laughs> Joseph Mangala was Mossad's white whale. They never managed to capture him, even surveilling what they thought was his apartment, but he had already moved. They went to Paraguay, when in reality he was being given safe haven by Germans in Brazil. He died in 79 at the age of 67, but it wasn't confirmed until the Brazilian authorities exhumed his body in 85. Do we know, besides the the cuisine and the Latin vibes, uh, the beautiful beaches, why did so many of these motherfuckers go to South America? I would assume because there was already a, a German diaspora there. Right. And... I don't know, but maybe extradition laws or something like that. Because they do all not, have assumed names, but yeah, not not to be like too pointed about it, but it's not like they blend in, you know. I think who was it? I think it was Eichmann was going by the name like Roberto Klempt. <laughs> he just has like a little Roberto. black <laughs> glue on black mustache. Uh. <laughs> Mr. Clamps, I noticed that you carried that mariachi guitar with you everywhere. Could I hear a song? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, Nine. I'm sorry, uh, guitar is sleeping. One apparently rare success was that of Herbert Kuckers, uh, a Latvian pilot that helped the Nazis. He became known as the Butcher of Riga. There's a lot of the butchers of, I think. I know. And the bakers are having a pretty easy time of <laughs> it, let's be honest. what about the candlestick bakers? <laughs> oh, you don't want to hear about them. They did some real fucked up shit. To be fair, they did. Oh, dear. They made candles out of okay. the fat of Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, he was responsible for the killing of 30,000 Latvian Jews. He fled to Brazil, where he worked as a tour guide, flying tourists over the Amazon rainforest. According to the Washington Post, quote, the Mossad planned to send a hit team posing as tourists who would hire him, kill him in midair, and dump his body. A suspicious Kirkus did not take the job. <laughs> Later, he was lured to Uruguay on a fake business offer and was shot in 1965. Sorry, I'm just picturing the two Mossad agents <laughs> who are both men who are posing as a husband and wife on their honeymoon. <laughs> Hello, I'm Ishmael, and this is my beautiful wife. 
Hannah. Yes, that's uh, wife's name. We'd like you to fly us over the rainforest for our romantic time. Quit, take, take, take my hand for fuck's sake. Take <laughs> oh, my hand. Oh, it's so, so sweaty. Oh. <laughs> yes, we are very much in love. It's, it's Let, our honeymoon. Yes. Uh, time for a honeymoon <laughs> kiss. Mm. 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 Yes. Mm. So about that flight. <laughs> you didn't even bother to shave your beard for that. <laughs> Look. <laughs> people from Israel are kind of hairy. I mean, people from Wisconsin. <laughs> in the end, their heart wasn't really in hunting down and murdering Nazi scum. Israeli leadership was more focused on the here and now, the, quote, Egyptian missile program, Palestinian Hezbollah terrorists, and Iraqi, Syrian, and Iranian weapons of mass destruction. Mm. And all the Nazi hunting just kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah, I've got to admit, I feel like the world would be a better place if more of the Israeli military were just focused on even just hunting down modern day Nazis. (laughs) Just like... Here's a list of people who were at the Capitol on January sixth. Do what that with you <laughs> do with that what you will. Go nuts, guys. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, that's not the world that we live in. Well, uh, thank you for your <laughs> stories of those bungled Mossad adventures. Um, all right, sounds like it's time for some weird facts, huh? It sure is. So I think I'm on deck for our first weird fact. And in my typical style, I'm coming at you with uh, a fistful of weird facts. And they're all about oh the, <laughs> the the royals. Okay. Uh, again, I found an article by Newsweek that has, it's a listicle, it has something like 41 weird things you may not know about the royals. Number four in that list is that a politician is taken hostage in the palace every year. Uh, according to this article, the Queen... <laughs> by tradition. <laughs> just for funsies. <laughs> Uh, The Queen outlines the government's legislative agenda each year in a speech during the state opening of Parliament. A lesser-known royal tradition requires a British lawmaker known as a member of Parliament to give themselves up to Buckingham Palace as collateral. Oh, literally in tradition. (laughs) Yeah. The tradition dates back to times when relations between the palace and parliament were not as trusting as they are now, and the monarchy wanted to guarantee the sovereign would not be harmed. So, it's dark. I just, I as much as I don't want the royal family to be wasting taxpayer money, uh, I hope that it involves like an actual hostage situation. You know, <laughs> helicopters whirring overhead, SWAT sure. teams in place. He's got a bag over his head. I I'd love to see Boris Johnson with a, a black sack over his head. Yeah. Uh, number twenty-seven on that list: uh, royals always carry a black outfit. Members of the royal family... So that when they kidnap people, they can get away with it. They can blend into the shadows. Members of the royal family have to travel prepared for all eventualities, including an unexpected death in the family. They carry a black outfit when they travel abroad on royal tours, just in case they need their clothing to reflect the somber mood following a tragedy. I mean, certainly they don't carry anything. And I doubt that they even know what clothes are in their suitcases. Just like <laughs> I, they've probably queried that. Like, why? Why do I always have? Oh, sure. Like a... I'm sure they know why they do. They yeah. just don't know. Like somebody it, else is assembling their wardrobe. It's the same reason that they travel in separate flights as well, so that they can't 
clear the first five rungs of the ascension to the throne in one fell swoop. And number 31 in that list, you're going to love this one, especially after we were talking about Mossad, uh, the Queen's uncle was a suspected Nazi sympathizer. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Edward VIII was briefly king until the abdication crisis of 1936, when he abandoned the throne to marry American divorcee Wallace Simpson, which uh, anyone who's seen the Queen's speech will know about that. Uh, in 1937, the couple visited Nazi Germany, where they had a meeting with Hitler, according to the BBC. Photographs of the royals encouraging the Queen and Princess Margaret to do a Sieg Heil in 1933, when they were children, were also published in The Sun in 2015. The princesses could not have known at the time what the salute meant, or what its connotations would later become. Wow. I mean, there were children at the time. Uh, Edward VIII very much was not. So, something I came across in my research, this was originally going to be not assassination attempts on Queen Elizabeth, but just the royal family in general. There have been a bunch. Feel free to do a Google at home. But one of the assassination attempts was against Edward VIII. And the morning following his assassination, he got a telegram from Adolf Hitler saying like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about this horrible thing that happened to you. So, you know, it sounds like they were pretty good buddies. Wow. Pretty good, pretty good friends. Okay, well, I've also got a Nazi fact. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. (laughs) So the Mossad had their whole hit list, but uh, one person on their hit list, I believe his name was Otto Skorinci. Mm-hmm. Um, they briefly considered killing him, but instead decided to recruit him. This man is an unrepentant Nazi. Uh, he never changed, like, he he didn't, like, ever apologize for what he did. He never... I mean, that's the least that he could do. (laughs) Right. Um, they apparently even took him to, um, like, Holocaust museums and memorials, and and he was just like, eh. I know about this shit. I was there. (laughs) I was there. I did that. Look, there I am. (laughs) Um, but he agreed to help Israel in exchange for being taken off their hit list. Um, and he even turned down like offers of money. He was just like, just don't kill me. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, in fairness, that, that is a better reward. Well, I think the prime minister refused to take him off the list, but the Mossad faked a letter. They forged a letter from the prime minister and were like, here, he agrees. They really are <laughs> using deception as their greatest weapon, huh? So, they analyzed him and supposedly saw that he had no moral compass, but he became an enthusiastic and cooperative agent for the Jewish state. He obtained and provided key intelligence and the scientists working for Egypt, including personal information and addresses. He mailed at least one letter bomb. They fucking love a letter bomb. They do. God, don't, with Christmas around the corner, guys, just don't, uh, don't people open wanna, anything. <laughs> people want to get things in the mail, but they don't want to get that. Um, do we know how old he was when, when he got recruited by Mossad? I don't know, but apparently he willingly participated in at least one assassination. In fact, it was Gorinci who pulled the trigger and killed one of the German scientists. I was just going to say, you know, it's good to have something to do in your retirement. You know what I mean? You just worry that... You know, you're not going to get, like, a third act in your yeah, life. Yeah, your mind is not going to be active enough. Yeah, it just left Potter around. So, you know, uh, retirees out there who are listening at home, 
consider a career in the Secret Service. He probably couldn't have been that uh, young because he died peacefully in his sleep in Madrid in 1975. Just exactly <laughs> what you want to hear, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, we hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please give us a like, give us a follow, and leave a review. This has been Enter the Rabbit Hole, as always, reminding you to... Remember, no matter who you are, no matter where you live, even you can be somebody, alright? Shoot for the stars, and maybe you'll land on the moon. If you can put your heart to something... don't actually shoot the stars. (laughs) Just remember that you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. Why does this feel like a recruitment (laughs) ad? Alright, take care, everybody. Please... Do great things, but not terrible things. I think that was implied by what, what? I said. I think it was pretty. People, people know what I mean. People know what I mean. All right, take care, gang. Ciao. Enter the rabbit hole. Enter the rabbit hole is written and presented by William Grant and Alicia Palmer. The music was created by Glenn Marshall. More information and sources can be found in the episode description. You can email us at etrhthepod at gmail or follow us on Instagram at etrhthepod. Thanks for listening.